Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Hey everyone, Dave here to tell you about my show Cryptic Cocktail Party. Looking for a good time filled with laughter, intriguing tales, and a splash of the supernatural? Well, maybe I can help. Every week I bring on a rotating cast of guests to have a few drinks, share a few laughs, and take a dive into the unknown. Join us as we raise our glasses and tell the tales of some of the world's most famous cryptids, from the legendary Grafton monster to the elusive Dover demon and the enigmatic Mothman. Well, that's not all. Our party spills over into the world of the extraterrestrial, encounter the spine-chilling Flatwoods monster, the mischievous Hopkinsville goblin, and uncover the truth about infamous alien encounters. You need a dash of mystery? We got you covered. Delve into mind-blowing conspiracy theories such as the infamous Philadelphia experiment and the secrets hidden within the Denver airport. Cryptic Cocktail Party is a weekly comedy podcast that guarantees laughter, curiosity, and a few surprises along the way. Cheers to the unknown. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast on the Podmoth Media Network, your foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. My guest for the end of Season 9 is Nathan R. Stenberg. He is a first-generation disabled college graduate from Minnesota. Nathan works as an artist, actor, musician, film director, producer, consultant, certified personal trainer, public speaker, and scholar-activist. He's interested in how the stories we tell about disabled people influence everything from depictions of disability in popular entertainment to policy decisions for the disability community in the United States. He's currently a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Theater, Arts, and Dance at the University of Minnesota. His dissertation examines how Pennhurst serves as a site to interrogate legal, medical, and societal perceptions of disability. His research reveals how popular performance casts disability as a specter that haunts quote-unquote normal, non-disabled society, thus perpetuating the idea that disabled people are less than human. Nathan is the co-chair of events, fundraising, and outreach committee and board member for the Pennhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance. Um, so, Nathan, thanks so much for joining me. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your work with Penhurst and your position on the board uh, of the Penhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance? Of course. Uh, so I got introduced uh, to Penhurst uh, about six years ago when I was taking a class uh, as a first semester grad student at the University of Minnesota's Law School on bioethics, biomedicine, and law. And uh, it was really a fascinating environment to be with because I was a, a theater PhD 
in a room full of uh, third-year law students who were about to graduate and go into uh, uh, hospitals working as counselors to advise uh, doctors and hospital administrators on issues of medical ethics. Mm-hmm. And none of them realized that the room we were taking a class in was inaccessible to people with disabilities, let alone were they really interested in getting into any kind of uh, historical debates around uh, how the field of bioethics started and its historic exclusion of disabled people. So I went full tilt into researching institutions. And uh, I had learned about institutions like the Willowbrook State School and Hospital outside of Staten Island, mm. pretty infamously uh, injected um, uh, hepatitis into its um, underage inmates, chocolate milk, uh, and yeah. I eventually learned about Penhurst uh, through both the law side, the Supreme Court cases that closed Penhurst, but then also because it was a haunted house. And I was really struck by this um, idea that a place such as an institution uh, could be turned into a haunted house. So at the time, I was really interested in a totally other project, uh, and I wanted to make it out to New Jersey to to, to spend the summer with my then uh, girlfriend, frankly. Uh, And I was like, well, I need to find uh, a typical grad student. I need to find a way to pay my my bills for the summer. Right, And so I was... uh, I was applying to fellowships, and and so I thought, ah, well, there's this institution turned haunted house. I can sell this, you know. I can I can get money for this. I'll I'll research it for a summer, and then you know enjoy the time, and then go on to the other project that I was interested in working in. And uh, so, sure enough, uh, I <laughs> I wrote the grant. I I got the money as I anticipated, and then I reached out to the Penhurst. Memorial and Preservation Alliance. It was just like, hi, grad student here coming out in the summer to do research. Like, you know, anybody want to talk to me? And I got a response from uh, the late uh, Greg Pierman, who was at that time the vice president of the organization, who was like, oh, yes, of course, you know, come talk to us. Like, you're interested in getting involved? And I was like, okay, hold on. Like, I'm just, just wanting to learn more. Uh, and long story short, I came out to Penhurst in August of 2018. Uh, at the end of my first year in grad school. And the moment that I stepped on campus, uh, I remember feeling my stomach dropped uh, mm. in a way that it had not since I'd gone to Doc High. Uh, and oh, wow. The big difference for me was knowing through the work that I had done on biomedicine and eugenics that I would not have been consigned to Doc High. I would have been consigned to the death camp. Um, mm. But I would have been consigned to Penhurst if I had lived in the area because of my diagnosis. Sure. Uh, and knowing that just filled me with such anxiety and dread. Uh, and then I met uh, Dr. Jim Conroy, who is the president of the Penhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance, and we had a great conversation. Uh, and he was also the sociologist who did a longitudinal study about the quality of life of what happened to Penhurst inmates when they were released. Did Mm. they get better? Did they get worse? And uh, his research spanning over 20 years emphatically found that they did indeed uh, find better quality of life and redevelop skills that they had lost since coming to the institution. So it was a very clear project showing that institutional environments not only produced harm, 
the antithesis mm. of what they were sold as, but that actually being out in the community, being treated as human beings, what a novel idea, brought not mm. only joy and uh, a sense of, of value to their lives, but also finally fulfilled the mission that the institution could never uh, perform. And anyway, mm. All that to say, I had to ask the question um, because I was, you know, I, I was I was raised in a hospital. Uh, I've had um, numerous, numerous surgeries and spent most of my childhood living in, in the Schreiner's Hospital for children sure. uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And because of my, uh, because I live with cerebral palsy, I know I would have been, you know, likely a candidate for institutionalization. So at that time, I didn't really know much, but I had to ask Conroy. <laughs> the obvious question, and that was, would I have been there? And uh, Conroy sized me up based off of his research methodologies and signed me certain kind of categories and, and, and uh, ability levels and functioning levels and came to find out that, yeah, indeed, there would have been 20-some-odd kids just like me um, at my current level of life. Uh, you know, mind you, I'm now ambulatory. I mean, I, I spent most of my childhood in, in, in carts, wheelchairs, Sure. Um, crutches, et cetera. And so my fate would have been far worse. And the number of folks like me would have been far more numerous um, than it was now. So in that moment, it was just like, mm. well, if I don't do this, uh, this could be my life. This could be the life of someone else. Um, and so yeah. I went from this pet project of just trying to, how do I put you know food on the table for a summer to this is something that is, is much more potent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the um, the mention of uh, Dachau and comparing that to Penhurst, that that really gave me chills. Um, I watched uh, the 1999 documentary uh, Penhurst. Mm -hmm. um, I've been through it several times now. I, I keep coming back to it just because um, it is so powerful, you know, the, the way that it was produced. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, so the way that they incorporate sound into these absent places, that documentary, the um, there was a lady on there that said that she did have um, cerebral palsy and and was um, placed in Penhurst. So yeah, I mean the the fact that you say you know you you probably would have ended up there yourself. The the fact that some of these institutions you know like Penhurst are still active you know like we we haven't really come that far in terms of you know care um you know for for the mentally disabled and it's it's really just you know very sad you know and, and you talked in your bio about um you know people as people and seeing people as their abilities versus you know their disabilities um you know like for example i mean i'm hard of hearing but that doesn't mean that i can't you know, have a conversation or, you know, enjoy, uh, you know, a, a cup of coffee and go for a walk outside and talk to somebody and be, a, you know, be a human being, be a person. So, yeah, it's just really, um, it, it's, you know, it's it's a powerful thing to think that, you know, these these places existed and, and also that, you know, in, in some sense they still do exist. And then you mentioned um, Willowbrook as well. Uh, I was introduced to Willowbrook through... Uh, there's a filmmaker named Joshua Zeman, mm -hmm. um, and he did a documentary called Cropsy. And Willowbrook was kind of 
I mean, it, it was part of the story, but it was it was secondary um, because they were talking about, you know, a, a true crime story that kind of interlocked with with that particular topic. But, um, you know, they had the the segment there of the Geraldo Rivera expose, um, mm. very much, you know, line for line, similar to the Baldini, the the um, Bill Baldini, you know, went in to Penhurst. Um, yep. You know, and, and revealed all this stuff and brought this stuff to the surface. The fact is, we just have to do better. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know yeah, what that, yeah. that looks like. <laughs> you know, a, as you mentioned, you take people out of these environments and you put them into, allow them to, to be people. You know, go out into the world and, and you know, have have a job, you know, the, make a, have a family, you know, have interactions with their own family. Um, you know, regular social interaction is so powerful for people um, and not just people who are disabled. I mean, people in general, you know, we're, we're social animals. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, two thoughts. The first is, I mean, just to be clear for your listeners, 36 states in the United States today segregate disabled people in institutions. Yeah. That it's still ongoing. Yeah. Uh, just last week, there was an article in the New York Times uh, arguing for the return of institutionalization. Uh, this is a, a continued theme on both sides of the, the political aisle and also within the disability community. Now, if you start to look at who is making those claims, particularly when it's coming from the disability community, it tends not actually almost, I at least have never heard a disabled person asking for institutionalization to return. Right. Um, it's always non-disabled advocates, parental, parents, siblings who make the claim that, you know, their child or sibling needs these kinds of accommodations or custodial care. My question is, is, you know, how would you like it? Uh, the, the, the most, I think, apt metaphor we have for this or analogy for this is something we've all recently experienced but have seemingly oft forgotten, and that was isolation of COVID. <laughs> that whole year of unknowing, yeah. right? And sheer sense of anxiety and uncertainty, uh, of lack of socialization, of being stuck in our places of residence, being sequestered, albeit with the comfort of things like Netflix and Tiger King, right? Uh, <laughs> and your podcast, of course. Right. Uh, oh, sure. <laughs> You know, but that is the daily existence for people living, existing in these institutions. Yeah. And so if, if you felt COVID isolation was hard, try a night in the institution, right? Uh, it, it just, it, it's, it's unbelievable to me that people in any way or form think, conceivably think that this is a rational uh, let alone humane choice to make, um, particularly when you get down to the brass tacks of like, you know, how much these places cost states uh, in terms of taxpayer money, federal mm -hmm. dollars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It just comes down to the reality of we have certain people in our society that we don't want to deal with. And those are primarily disabled people and old people. Uh, and to a certain extent, our children, right? We enjoy children, but then we're often very quick to, you know, put them 
in uh, boarding schools and other things to kind of rid ourselves mm -hmm. of, of responsibility. And I think really yeah. to your point you're making is that this is about forcing society to take an honest look at itself mm -hmm. and say who's here, who's not, and why. Yeah, and I mean, on a completely unrelated topic, um, the the medication of children also to put them in boxes, because, you know, if you're overactive, um, you're probably just a curious, excited kid. Uh, but that, you know, that's inappropriate, right? That's not what we want in our society. We want people to be cool, calm, and collected and quote unquote normal. Um, yeah. And this concept of of normalcy and, you know, everything has to be painted a certain way and everything has to look a certain way. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I watched that documentary and there's there's one gentleman, um, I forget what his name was, but um, he had cerebral palsy. Um, and he said that from the time he got to Penhurst until the time that he left, he was in a crib. He yeah. was just kept in a crib. And was not let out for like any sort of like physical therapy or nothing activities you know nothing he was just kept in this crib and uh i think that they said something like the average penhurst resident got three minutes of um psychotherapy a year i just yeah it just it boggles the mind you know you're there yeah. you're you're trying to help people who are mentally disabled and at the same time, you're only giving them three minutes of of help a year. That just doesn't, it doesn't you know, it, it really just screams, we're here to see how much money we can make off the backs of these poor people who are suffering. Yeah. So two yeah. thoughts, one a historical and one a contemporary. The first is, you know, historically, unfortunately, with Penhurst, um, and I say this as a, as a, as a someone who is a critical theorist uh, who works in in philosophy and, and performance, not so much in like practical traditional modes of, you know, like Shakespeare, for example, I'm very much sure. interested in, in, in kind of the theoretical ways that bodies transfer knowledge to one another. So mm -hmm. I'm not a historian by training. And so I say that as a caveat to say, I have learned through this project, the importance of really understanding the evolutions of care historically mm -hmm. at places like Penhurst, because for better or worse, there were at times in this country where institutions did fulfill its mission of of educating and socializing, quote unquote, I won't get into that, uh, mm. disabled people. Uh, and we're halfway decent, kind of similar to boarding schools. Um, but, you know, that changed over time into the warehousing and, and, and terrible conditions that we, that we are all so familiar with. Mm -hmm. But even within those periods of warehousing that we find within the 20th century, like take for example, Penhurst. I, I went from having to examine Penhurst from like every 20 years to every decade, then down to every five years to now where I can just about make every three years is typically mm -hmm. where you start to see the shift. And so to understand the nuances of this place, you really got to get granular because it changes so much. Uh, but the crib yeah. case, as they were called, um, is not all that uncommon. And the level of care that you're describing is also not all that uncommon. And frankly, I would have been, um, you know, when I was born, if I did not have certain medical interventions, I would have been labeled, I was labeled hyperactive and retarded. Mm -hmm. And I would have been a crib case. 
yeah. and thankfully I wasn't because that would have been a death sentence. But um, so that's the historical standpoint of just saying that, like, looking at the history of Penhurst, often it is about a lack of care. And the people yeah. who did care got swallowed by the bureaucratic system that institutions worked within. On a more present and contemporary lens, to give your uh, listeners just a sense of grounding and how this continues to happen, if you look at um, Title 19 of Medicaid, when Medicare and the way in which uh, Social Security um, funds uh, providers for people with disabilities, such as personal care assistants and group homes and things, mm. oftentimes disabled people, such as my father, for example, who also lived with cerebral palsy, was forced to work at sheltered workshops, uh, making under minimum wage. So in the case of my father, he was a mechanic who uh, had to forcibly retired due to his disability, uh, he was working for 30 cents an hour doing recycling, right? Oh, wow. While CEOs of these provider companies make millions of dollars a year. And once again, this just goes to show like where are our priorities, right? Uh, and this is not just, while in, most institutions have closed, the practices, the mindsets, the philosophies that have allowed these kinds of violent practices to fester live on. Uh, mm -hmm. And we see that time and time and time again. It's really just uh, heinous <laughs> that we continue to uh, not bring awareness to this. And again, it's a question of, you know, where's people's priorities, right? Because if Amazon doesn't deliver my stuff in two days, Suddenly I'm without woe, but like, <laughs> you know, we can continue to relegate people with disabilities into subhuman places of employment, of forced community and other things simply because we are supposed, you know, leeches on society. Where did that rhetoric come from? How does that, you know, how does that become a process? And looking at places mm -hmm. like Penhurst allows us to understand that and understand the historical evolutions of just how these things came to be. Yeah, and, and speaking of evolution, I mean, the the story of, of Penhurst, you know, as it began, um, I'm sure, as is the case with every new asylum, you know, they, they had good intentions, um, they had a maximum headcount, um, they were going to provide all of this quality care um, to people. So can we talk a little about um, the shift between it being this kind of idealistic healing space um, to what Penhurst eventually became? And, and I know that that's like a huge question to ask, um, <laughs> but if you can. Read my dissertation. No, uh, um, <laughs> I, well, if you want to, uh, that's probably the easiest way to do it. But uh, sure. for those of you who don't want to plow through academic writing, basically uh, I, I think about it, I, I, I was working uh, for Senator United States Senator uh, Kristen Gillibrand out of New York um, a couple of summers ago doing some specific work on disability policy aimed at um, personal care assistance uh, for people with disabilities. And through my work on the Hill, one thing I came to realize was the significant issue surrounding Social Security uh, mm -hmm. and specifically the, you know, the monthly income that disabled people receive. Uh, um, from social supplemental 
security income and uh, uh, also um, SSDI, which is insurance programming, both of which my father received. Uh, and what this does is it creates an asset limit of $10,000. So a disabled person cannot have more assets than $10,000. Hmm. And they cannot make a monthly income that exceeds $2,000. Let's think about this for a second. I live in Washington, D.C. in a basement apartment that I can barely you know, scrape by with. And my rent is $2,000 a month. So I can't pay the bill if I'm on Social Security uh, disability income. Now, getting back to your point about how Penhurst devolved, right? Using the, the example of Social Security, when that legislation that passed or that put in place this asset limit and this monthly income um, restriction was during the Nixon administration in the 70s. So $2,000 a month at that time was a lot of money. $10,000 in assets was pretty sizable. Mm -hmm. Now in 2022, it's nothing. It literally entraps disabled people into poverty. Hence, why when my, disa my disabled father had to stop working and needed health insurance, he no longer had private insurance through his employer. He turned to Social Security and then had to forfeit all of his assets, retirements that he earned, et cetera, and then had to work in this sheltered workshop, right? So if you look at that, the reason why this has not been fixed is not because there's some obscene, nefarious puppet master who's pulling the strings in Washington, keeping disabled people oppressed. It's that we've moved on, right? Mm. There's all these different fires that we're trying to put out. And so we created this, this legislation. We patted ourselves on the back and we said, it's okay. We're good now. We can move on. But it no longer reflects what people, disabled people, need. And the same thing is true of institutionalization and the question that you asked about the devolution of the institution. So Penhurst specifically was created in the time where eugenics, this idea that we could, you know, um, create a, a human race that was perfected, um, think Nazi Germany, by the way, uh, in Mein Kampf, Hitler cites institutions um, in America as what he would like to use as his blueprint uh, yeah. for the Third Reich and uh, what becomes concentration camps. And uh, so that framework is in mind when Penhurst specifically is created. But the legislation is pretty, well, it's actually pretty vague when you read it, but the intention is relatively clear that it was supposed to be a place for education, at least hmm. some kind of education. But ultimately, like the social, social security legislation, we pass the bill, we put money into it, and then when the rubber hits the road, the mechanisms that we created that we thought were good enough to do something slowly become more and more unapplicable to what is going on on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. And so in that, the people in power, typically administrators, tend to, you know, want to really, you know, ask for more funding, but then they're getting denied. So it's a really complicated issue of not getting enough funding from the state, the state not enacting new legislature to create new things, education of the people in charge, right? Um, how, are, how are the people who are running these places viewing people like me, 
right? The people that they're supposed to serve. If I'm, if, if they're being told in their coursework that I'm inhuman and I don't feel pain, they're going to see me as such. And then when they go to train the lower folks, uh, the, the aides who are working with people like me on a daily basis, that dehumanization is going to get perpetuated, right? So mm. it's this, this kind of slow, um, snowball effect that negligence, apathy, and sheer incompetence just starts to perpetuate along with other more nefarious things such as eugenics and larger social movements, et cetera, et cetera. But again, keeping that the analogy to the social security legislation in mind, oftentimes it's really just that we, we, we do something and it's really, really good. And then we say, yay, we got this done. And then we forget about it. And we think that it's over with, right? In reality, oftentimes the needs of the disability community is more dynamic and more fluid than kind of large swath policy or bureaucratic organizations such as welfare mechanisms can really accommodate. Does that answer your question? Yeah. You know, I I think that that whole that whole, you know, explanation of the system was excellent. Um I feel like it's so it's it's so profound as a question like what what should we do how can we fix this um you know it it barely scratches the surface right yeah 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 and it's and it's really i mean i i literally as i as i'm, I'm about to speak i mean I, it just fills me with so much anxiety and dread right as a disabled yeah. person because like one of the things that i write about in my my research is how I have this thing, it's a, literally a theory of mine that I call the specter of institutionalization. And that is that for disabled people today, it is both in how society, law, medicine, education requires people who identify with some kind of non-normative body-mind experience to perform disability, to receive benefit, right? Or supports or legal protection. But it's also, this existential fear that we all know that at any time, if someone in power just switches a, flips a switch and says, you know what, we really don't want to care for disabled people in the ways that we have been, and institutionalization is a better mechanism for that, we're going right back. Because we still do it. And I, you know, to your point about, you know, what are some kind of practical things that we can do here? One of the things that I find most readily important in my life is particularly the first generation disabled college grad, like making sure that every moment of my life, I'm lowering the ladder for other disabled people to come along. Right? Mm. In the grand scheme of things, I'm just, I really don't have that much power. I have a relative amount of privilege that I've, I've moved into later in life, and I want to recognize that and the power that I've managed to amass. But with what you know, power and privilege I do have and continue to accumulate, I want to make sure that you know, I'm able to lower that ladder for the generations of disabled people to come, because that's the only way we're gonna find practical change. And I saw that when I was working on the Hill. Because oftentimes I was the only person that came from a rural area in a mm. non-coastal state who identified as disabled, right? Don't exist. And if we're not in the room 
how are we going to make you know choices and change that really reflects the needs of our community because ultimately you meet one disabled person you met one disabled person right <laughs> so like we need a whole bunch of folks uh, right. uh because we all share just such unique experiences and i think that's another thing about you know the history of institutionalization is we tend to rabbit hole you know these institutions as folks for just people who are mentally disabled right or psychiatrically disabled folks go to asylums or individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities go to institutions but in reality it was basically anybody who was deemed socially inadequate mm -hmm. that means a whole hell of a lot of people and you'd be surprised who was there because it's a lot of people um for really pretty minor things um and if we lose sight of that i'm afraid we're going to lose sight of this history and why it matters and why we should never go back as far as institutionalization is concerned, I mean, we're also coming from a place where, you know, women could be institutionalized by their husbands because they were reading, you know, like yep. we, yeah, we yeah. you know, we've, we've come from, you know, the, the, the lobotomy mobile, um, <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, all of these just insane treatments, um, you know, that, that we thought were, were going to fix you know quote unquote fix people and um you know and, and kind of you know here we are now but it's it's not really any better um than it has been you know yeah yeah it's it's hard because i mean don't get me wrong i don't want to shortchange the amazing work of folks like dr conroy mm. and you know frankly a lot of the board members of the pmpa if you look at their resumes all of them are just giants in the field of deinstitutionalization. Yeah. And we've done a significant amount. Uh, and particularly when you look around the globe, I mean, right now, just looking at Ukraine and mm. the way in which, you know, for example, Russian soldiers are literally using disabled people as, as body shields and, and, mm. uh, and, and the heinous, heinous environments um, that exist in other countries. I mean, it's, we, we've got a long way uh, and we, we don't want to lose sight of that. But I think what becomes problematic, right, is the disability community is having a reckoning in a lot of ways as like communities of color are, right, mm -hmm. around, uh, um, around land grabbing, uh, the forceful removal of indigenous peoples from their lands into mm -hmm. reservations, and also the displacements and, uh, of, uh, of slaves and, and, yeah. and terrible racism of people of color, right? In that, like, yeah, slave plantations are technically no longer, and we're not, you know, well, mostly not revoking indigenous folks in their lands. The the afterlife of those things still exists, right? Mm -hmm. And it becomes almost more nefarious because it's less obvious. Yeah. And that's the same with institutionalization and the treatment of disabled people in this country. Like, yeah, we've closed most, not all, but most institutions, but it's also making the ways in which, you know, systematic oppression of disabled people occurs more harmful and less obvious. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's really where it gets scary um, when you start to not notice it or you notice it, but it resembles something of what you believe to be the status quo. Um, or it's just understood that that's the way that that is supposed to function. 
um yeah that's that's where it gets <laughs> really scary yeah one just one example of this sorry it's, it's i get me on my soapbox i swear but um <laughs> you know I, and the thing is is like i know you brought me on to talk about penhurst but it's like there's just so many recent things to draw from of just like literally how screwed up all of this is oh, so yeah. for example in 2021, a federal judge outside Boston, uh, Massachusetts District Court, ruled that shock therapy, or excuse me, shock treatment, uh, which is different from our medical professional listeners or your podcast from EVT or electroconvulsive therapy, which is commonly and rather controversially used in the treatment of people with psychiatric disabilities. Mm -hmm. um, shock treatment at this Judge Rottenberg Center in Canton, Massachusetts, was putting shock devices on the legs and bodies of children, inmates. And in the, in, in the case of, 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 or the instance of, of, of the inmate that brought the case to the court, shocked 20 some odd times until he became catatonic. Hmm. And the federal judge ruled that this is acceptable, right? If you look at the literature in our education, and uh, um, like institutional training programming journals, the mechanical and chemical restraint of disabled people is still something that is deemed worthwhile and productive. And that's terrifying. I, I honestly, um, you know, I've, I've had um, friends who have gone in for, um, you know, uh, treatment who have checked themselves in, um, you know, for their own, uh, mental well-being. Yeah. Um, and, uh, one of my friends actually did receive, um, electroshock therapy. Mm. And I just, I couldn't, it was like, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. Like you got what, <laughs> you know, like what happened to yeah. you? I'm sorry. Right. I just don't understand because, you know, you, you think about like, you know, those black and white grainy images of people like being held down on tables, you know, with the leather thing in their mouth and the metal things on their temples. And they're like, oh, that's so that's completely barbaric. There's no way that they're still doing that. And to some degree, they are. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's um, just like, you know, like what how, what do you think this is going to fix? Like, clearly, it's not working. Well, and they've I would done it so too, many times before. Right, right. <laughs> right. Well, you know, and within disability, right? Like we have various models uh, of disability, right? And depending on who you ask, they have different interpretations of this. But kind of like three or four main models are the medical model, the social model, uh, the rights model, and uh, a fourth model. Just to, to highlight uh, the work of a friend of mine and and uh, my friend Dr. Katrina Jirik, um uh, who is an amazing disability historian and, and activist, we've been working on this model, the value model of disability, that you know, disabled people have inherent value, right? Hmm. And, uh, uh, but, but you're saying, you know, your, your point about like, how does this, you know, fix people, right? Like inherently, we have not moved away from the medical model of disability, that hmm. as a person with a disability, that disability is a biological material fact about who we are. That is inherently problematic and needs to be fixed, right? And I think we need to get away with that <laughs> because oftentimes that leads to more issues than not. Now, on the flip side, there are, don't get me wrong, uh, you know, if you talk to 
any disabled person, you know, they will comment on, depending on the disability, right, the ways in which their disablement may impact their day-to-day life in real material ways, mm-hmm. pain, um, you know, like you said, hard of hearing, right, um, and, and, and ways that there are certainly medical interventions to assist in that. But that shouldn't be the end, right? That you are a problem because you have, you live with this thing, right? And I think that's the other large issue that we've not come to terms with, both in, you know, dominant non-disabled society, but also largely in the disability community in that, like, Mm. who do we want to be, right? Who do we find as human and who's not human? Uh, And Mm. I think... Once again, we just need to, you know, we, we just keep kicking this down the can, uh, this can down the line. And I, I think about, like, the University of Minnesota awarded me the Diversity and Equity and Inclusion um, Fellowship, which I was blown away by. Mm. Because if you look at most of the diversity, equity, inclusion conversations we're having today, they're typically always about race, ethnicity, gender, um, sexual orientation, mm-hmm. but they're not about disability. Yeah. And disability intersects all forms of identity and identity group. Mm-hmm. And yet it's the least talked about. And there, I think there's just a really fundamental question that we've yet to ask. And that is why, right? What is it about disability that makes non-disabled people feel that disability is something less than human? And until yeah. we really wrestle with that, I don't think we're going to see much change. Yeah, and that's um, that's a really good point, actually. I mean, I... You know, you see these um, these issues kind of, you know, resurface from time to time on a, a ballot, you know, or whatever. Um, you know, do you support Roe v. Wade? You know, um, do you, um, you know, uh, want uh, LGBTQIA plus people to be able to get married? Um, and there's never I mean, I I can think back to you know, a few presidencies now where I don't think that's ever come up, <laughs> you know, on, on a ballot measure. Um, you know, what is it? So, you know, what do you think of the, the current treatment of disabled people? You know, do you think that they should be treated um, better or as equals or have these certain rights? And, you know, it just, it, it never comes up. Yeah. Well, and, and largely, I mean, putting my policy cap back on, <laughs> like I won, <laughs> I would say it's largely because we've not created disability as a platform, right? Mm -hmm. It's not an issue for people because we really only care about disability at the beginning of life and the end of life. Mm -hmm. And those are the times in which we are the most vulnerable and are least empowered or able to have our perspectives be recognized, right? Mm -hmm. And I I think um, two other thoughts on top of that, a perfect example of this was Anybody that followed the the campaign of Senator John uh, Senator Senator Elect um, John Fetterman uh, and uh, the the change of media coverage post his stroke, right? Mm. There was a there was a TV interview he did shortly before the election, and the interviewer just tore him apart for having used um, transcription software and was literally mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't know if he's, you know, mentally competent anymore to be, you know, taking office in the Senate of the United States. And it's just like, what? This, 
it's an access measure. There's nothing about competency here. Like right. that's like saying that, you know, if a person can't get into a building because there's no ramp, then suddenly they're incompetent of doing their job. That's right. Total bull crap. And we know that, right? But suddenly disability became an issue. And I would say, unfortunately, the Fetterman campaign didn't do a very good job of making disability a platform. If I was John Fetterman, I would have spun the crap out of that. I would have said, look, I identify with an experience that 26% of Americans live with. Yeah. That's over a quarter of this country. While I'm coming to this experience later in life, I now know in a very minuscule way the intimate and difficult ways in which disability impacts the lives of Americans on a day-to-day basis. And I'm here to tell you that I'm going to fight for you, right? I'm going to be the person who will champion your perspective because no one else has. Now that, if I was his campaign manager, would have been the tack we would have taken. But of course, that's not the tack that they took. The tack was, I just had a stroke. I'm fine, right? Like, (laughs) it's just such non-disabled elision of disability once again right and on the flip side when when disabled people are asked to go and talk to their elected officials you know when you go to like a a policy seminar or you know kind of have a workshop on on how to talk to disability talk disability to politicians it's always well really what they're looking for is your stories so if you just Mm -hmm. share all your traumas Maybe just maybe they'll listen to you and then feel enough emotion that they'll do something about this issue. Right. And what that's doing is putting the labor, the burden of disabled people to. um, To employ emotional labor and. Mm -hmm. Share their traumas in the hopes, not even with a guarantee, but in the hopes that someone will care enough to maybe make a choice about this, right? And so it, once again, it just goes to show that it's not about actually bringing disabled people in to say, what can we do or how can we make this different? It's simply about using disability as a vehicle that mostly non-disabled people can pass in and out of Mm. to either bolster their arguments or say that they've been disenfranchised. it leaves disabled people and the experiences of disability out of the conversation, mm-hmm. which I think is, you know, one of the real problematic and complicated parts of Pennhurst. Getting back finally to why you asked <laughs> me to talk uh, on this show, is that like with the haunted house, right? Because in many ways it brings the awareness of disability and institutionalization to the masses, sure. right? Um, Penners was voted the number one scariest haunt in America. It was referenced on, you know, Netflix's Stranger Things. Like, there's growing awareness of the attraction. And I will say one of the cool things is, is through my research, I've learned that most of the people that work there identify with living with some form of disability. And some have been institutionalized themselves. Granted, I know of no Penhurst survivors who work there. But several of the haunters that I've gotten to know have family members who were institutionalized at Pennhurst and who died at Pennhurst. Oh, wow. Right? And 
what I think is so beautiful and also so complex about that is, on one hand, it explains how and why we as a society continue to sanction violence against disabled people, right? Mm. Because people will spend money to watch it for entertainment. Half the stuff that they're replicating in the attraction is the same kind of thematic violence that happens in real institutions. Mm. And it's about non-disabled people being ent entering into a space where they can observe that and partake in that in this very voyeuristic way for even just a moment, right? But be able to be safe while doing so and not have their sense of control over non-disabled people or their perceptions of, uh, excuse me, their sense of control over disabled people and their, their perception of disability really skewed in any way. Mm. But on the flip side, what's really powerful is, is that for the disabled hunters that work there, they feel like they can, you know, reclaim this space and reclaim their sense of identity and not just sure. have to share their stories, right? They can literally scare the crap out of people <laughs> and get a sense of like, yeah, I'm doing something here. And that's really powerful. But it's all under, again, the specter of institutionalization, knowing that at any moment, we're all living in this state of precarity, that we mm -hmm. could just end up in a place like Pennhurst, not yeah. performing either. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, you know, um, Nathan, you keep saying, you know, I, well, let's bring it back to Pennhurst, you know, because that's the reason why you're here and that's the reason why we're talking. Um, I, I have done um, an episode on Pennhurst. Um, mm. And it was only about, you know, my, my usual podcast format is only about like 30 minutes. Um, and really, what can you get through in 30 minutes? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and you don't get the whole story. You know, you get a little bit of the history and you get kind of sort of where it is now. And then that's about it. Um, yeah. So one of the I mean, one of the main reasons why I, I wanted to have you on was to kind of discuss um, you know, the the power that this institution held over people. Um, because I I think it says a lot about that kind of um ghostly presence that it still has. You know, like I, I know a lot of those buildings, you know, some of them have been demolished and um, you know, they're they're kind of making way for new things and there's, you know, a museum and um, you know, they're doing the haunt and everything else. But but as you said, I mean, yeah, you know, there there are people there who are scaring the crap out of other people, but there's this whole underlying kind of vibration of, you know, the, the, the fear that people who were sequestered to this place must have felt. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's, you know, it's profoundly important that 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 information is also put forward along with, uh, hey, look at this really creepy, spooky place. Ooh, you know, whatever, you know, because I mean, there are people involved, you know, this is a place where people lived and died and. Um, I think it's important that, you know, we, we understand from all perspectives. So, yeah, I mean, part of the reason was I wanted to have you on because I wanted to talk about the, the mm. haunted stuff and, you know, we'll get to that, but, um, you know, I really, you know, I, I, I want the baseline, you know, I, I want to know what it was like, like, you know, for example, um, you know, what was an average day say for a patient? Like, I know that the first patient, um, was admitted in, uh, November of 1908, Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, they, they start with good intentions. They're going to do all of these good things for people. So, you know, what, what was that average day like? You know, what were, you know, meals, treatments, what were their living spaces like? 
Um, and then, you know, maybe like what was the average time that somebody might spend there or like the reasons for commitment? Yeah, I mean, so that's, that's a great and actually a very complicated question to answer. <laughs> and like, it really just kind of depends on the time mm. period, right? Mm. Um, because that, that, that question evolves and devolves and evolves again over the course of time. Right. Um, in the early years, um, and I mean like a very, for a very short period of time before the institution really started to get overcrowding, which took like, excuse me, like less than like two years, just to, just, <laughs> just to name that didn't take very long at all. Most of the folks that were admitted were non-custodial cases. Um, so, well, in the sense that like they wouldn't have been in cribs, they likely would have been ambulatory uh, mm. and, you know, able to um, perform vocational labor. Uh, and in many ways, that is a, a holdover from the earlier days of institutions. So mm. institution philosophy back in the late 18th century uh, which shout out to Dr. Jerick again, this is what he researches. Uh, institutional philosophy was really about you'd live there, but you'd also like learn how to farm if you were a, a person who identified as, as uh, male, uh, if you were more femme identifying. Uh, you know, and granted, these were very hard, you know, gender roles, right? So it was, it was man and, and, and woman at that sure. time, or boy and girl. And so then, you know, for the girls, they would be doing more domestic based tasks sewing, housekeeping, cleaning, laundry, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, and then, but the idea was, is that eventually, you know, through that vocational training and then rudimentary educational classes, like basic writing and math, that they would be released back into the society to go back to their family farms to work. But, you know, that slowly mm -hmm. eroded. So like, even by the time that Penhurst was created in 1908, right, because society is industrializing and these families are moving from the farm into the city and right. so uh in the earlier days so like let's just say the first maybe five years at most at most um you know you had like i said mostly ambulatory non-custodial cases folks who were were essentially working you know at the institution doing those kinds of votech things receiving those kinds of um, rudimentary classes then uh, by like 1915, the institution is already starting to get overwhelmed. And that's largely because, as I mentioned before, it wasn't just people with mental disabilities that were being institutionalized there. Right. You know, I mean, I've seen uh, a lot of immigrants, um, kids of immigrants who died. Uh, I, heck, I've seen kids who just drooled too much that were mm -hmm. institutionalized. One young man um, was institutionalized, I think, at 16 because he was chasing a girl around. Uh, and he was on his way back from school and like the superintendent just rounded him up and put him in the institution, right? Uh, and then interestingly in that case, when he was 21, when the law changed and required a court commitment, he was brought to a court to recommit him. And the, the panel of three judges were literally like, could this person even be in an institution? Like, what about habeas corpus? And they were like, eh, well, it seems kind of sketchy, but the law is the law. So if you say right. he's still supposed to be here, then we'll keep him in. And that's, that's what it was. Um, and, you know, so, but then you also started to get more custodial cases. So, uh, and forgive me for any historians who are listening to this. I'm being very, very fast and loose with the facts and the dates and the details here, just so we're clear on that. Um, but largely, if you were deemed a custodial case, 
you were someone who was non-ambulatory, who would have lived like on the first ward in a crib or a wheelchair. Mm. And um, you would have just been confined to existing. Uh, you know, and these spaces didn't really have much. They were just drab, open space warehouses, essentially. Yeah. Um, and then the ambulatory folks um, or folks who were deemed, you know, higher grades. So the custodial cases were often uh, called low grades. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was, of course, based off of IQ testing and other things. But the reason that I don't use those kinds of markers is because the tests were often very, very inaccurate, right? Because mm-hmm. think about it. If you've got someone who is a quote-unquote custodial or crib case who is nonverbal, who is blind, and perhaps lives with cerebral palsy, right? Has some kind of issue with like muscular spasticity. Mm-hmm. Most of the IQ tests of that time are completely inaccessible. Mm-hmm. So they're going to fail the test. It's like trying to take a, a ACT in English if you speak Spanish. Right? You're not going to know what's going on. It uh, doesn't mean you can't do well on a test. You just It's not accessible to you. Right. And so a lot of the more medical diagnoses that I read in these patient files, I can't take with any grain of ver- um, validity, and which is why I refuse to use them, frankly, mm-hmm. like right now, uh, even though they very much had them and that was part of it, right? So it was how superintendents and administrators and doctors view the children. Um, so you've got the low-grade folks who are kind of consigned to just existing on the on the first floors of, of wards, and then folks who are deemed higher grades, they were spent to do slave labor around the institution. Um, mm. You know, you asked about the day. Uh, didn't really matter, you know, what your classification was. The day was roughly the same, waking around like 6, 7 o'clock. Uh, and then if you were high grade, you would go off into the fields or into the, you know, warehouse or the or the factory, or the kitchen, or the laundry, or wherever, you know, depending on where you were, uh, what job you were working, and you would work that with um, not much of a lunch break in between, uh, and then you would go back and work. Uh, or in the afternoon, sometimes you would go to school if you were deemed educable. Um, mm. And, you know, this would often repeat. Now, granted, there was a lot of flux in this very wide generalization um, throughout the years. Um, you know, some years emphasized more education, while others were just work emphasized. Um, but then, you know, as we kind of careen towards the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, that's when overcrowding became at its height. And so they were literally putting cribs on end to end, um, and the, the, the higher grade inmates were primarily just providing care uh, for lower grade inmates uh, because yeah. they didn't have staff, like nurses and things to cover them. Um, and then, uh, and they were also subject to a lot of research testing. So like, for example, at Penhurst, uh, there was a, uh, researcher at the University of Pennsylvania's medical school, who also was one of the first administrators of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who conducted experiments on children using influenza, syphilis, other things, um, mm-hmm. kind of like the hepatitis thing at Willowbrook, um, and, you know, these kids were basically, because the parents transferred consent over their children to the state, they were wards of the state and could be deemed, you know, oh. um, worthy of, of such uh, research. Uh, mm-hmm. But then as like the 70s came along and, and labor that was being performed by the inmates suddenly had to go back to the um, 
non-disabled administrators. Uh, and they didn't have enough staff, right? So then the care and the kind of quality of life took a nosedive in the sense of like, there was just nothing for them to do. So they just sat there a lot of the time. Um, yeah, and then it's it's around this time, right, that the um, the Bill Baldini expose, I think the 68. Yep, yep. For NBC yep. 10, yeah, he comes out with Suffer the Little Children. Yeah, and that was, you know, and I think exposés, particularly as someone who studies performance, I think is really kind of an interesting thing because, you know, they're they're incredibly necessary, but they also very much kind of reify these understandings of like, you know, non-disabled people who are kind of closer to the non-disabled expectation. Mm. Get, you know, like there's this moment where Baldini interviews a little Johnny and, you know, Johnny gets put in a Quaker, which was a, a, a quote unquote low grade ward where Johnny lost functioning in a lot of ways, right? Mm. And you know, the whole crux of the scene was about how, oh, you know, Johnny should have been, you know, normal. Like he never should have been here and now he's in Quaker and he's losing function, which is not wrong, right? right? But it's also really interesting who's not in that film. And that's mostly the crib cases, the low grades, mm. right? And there again, it gets back to this question of how do we define who is human? Of us um, with disabilities that make us you know, past is more non-disabled, such as myself in my current state, right? Like if you were to look at me, probably wouldn't know I was disabled or that I spent my life in a hospital or in a wheelchair or crutches, leg braces, et cetera, you know? Um, and so people, I feel like, I feel like that um, kind of makes disability more safe for folks. And what's interesting in those exposés is it's kind of a, a real tour de force of reifying non-disabled norms despite really good intentions of trying to make change in this place sure how did penhurst deal with the bad press that it was receiving or did they yeah the, yeah and there's some really interesting questions like for example greg pureman um as i mentioned before he was around during that time period and his kind of you know perceptions of all that is, it's, it's just rather interesting right because in many ways, institutions and Pennhurst alike was, you know, they're no stranger to controversy and to issues like this arising. Um, but I think, you know, there was, there's a certain kind of like, well, what can we do, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's hard um, because, frankly, the, the archival record of Pennhurst ends right around uh, the early 1960s, so like 61, 62. So in the archive, there's not a lot of material um, from administrators or other things to get a sense of how they responded to it, um, oh, okay. frankly. Um, and there's probably a wide variety of why that exists, but it's kind of a, basically after the 1960s, Penhurst becomes a black hole. Uh, and unless you you know, interview someone who was working in the administration or, you know, know someone, blah, 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 blah. I mean, the perspective changes, of course, and who you talk with. Sure. Um, but in my research, there hasn't been a lot of really clear um, documentation about how the institution um, dealt with it. But hmm. my guess is from the patterns of other, you know, controversies that they, they weathered, and also, you know, obviously we know what happened to Penhurst, but they likely tried their best to, you know, make some changes as they could, but were likely also held up, you know, through bureaucratic mechanisms like lack of funding from state legislatures, yeah. apathy and negligence of, of, you know, actors at the institution, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, I think it was around that time, too, that um, there were some staff members that were um, indicted for uh, a bunch of different offenses, um, you know, assaulting patients and, um, you know, forcing patients to fight one another and um, just kind of all this despicable stuff. Um, yeah, I, I wondered, um, you know, just because, like you said, there's no, you know, it, it turns into kind of a black hole. Um, and, you know, what do you do? You know, you get you get this bad press and you're like, well, okay. I mean, <laughs> there's still going to be, you know, two staff members to every 60 or 70 patients because we have yeah. no more money to put into this. So what are we, what are we going to do? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and then think, in 1981, you know, you know, Time Magazine comes out with this article that says that, you know, it's understaffed and it's dirty and it's violent. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, it didn't change from, <laughs> you know, right. like, right. How were they going to change? They didn't have any money to change. They weren't given any other option than to just be what they were. Right. And I mean, to, so a couple of thoughts. One, I mean, I think it's interesting. Uh, one of the most fascinating reads I've ever had was reading through all the newspaper clippings of local uh, and state newspaper articles written about Penhurst. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, you see these kinds of issues that are raised in the Baldini film from basically day one of Penhurst. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there had been multiple investigations by the FBI, by the state police, by the governor's office, by the Department of Welfare, time in and time out, decades before Baldini. Hell, I think even probably before Baldini was born. Sure. Um, uh, but don't fight me on that. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I mean, it, it's, uh, but, but, you know, the, these abuses did occur quite frequently, and there were a number of in, in investigations. And I think one of the things that also is kind of unfortunate that gets glanced over in this is despite all of the terrible, and I am in no way attempting to, you know, glorify or idealize the institution, mm -hmm. but Penrose also made a lot of really profound impact in the mm -hmm. field of, at that time, mental retardation. Uh, through grants it was receiving, and I mean, you know, it was Band-Aid on a on a on an eviscerated <laughs> wound. Uh, you know, I mean, it was. Uh, uh, don't get me wrong, but I mean, I think it is important to recognize that. I mean, like the, for example, music therapy. Uh, there's a mm. video on YouTube. Somebody touched me, which was narrated by Henry Fonda. Um, mm which was a, a film that the federal government sponsored in response to a federal grant that Penhurst had received. And the film is gross. I mean, frankly, as again, as, as a performance scholar, like it's just, it's a total reification of how non-disabled people view disabled people. Sure. Um, but like they were doing substantial stuff, like particularly in music therapy and other areas. Um, and hmm. it's really hard because yeah, I remember talking with Greg, uh, the administrator, administrator turned PMPA co-founder that I was mentioning. You know, he was adamant until the day that he died that they could turn the ship around, right? Yeah. Just given more funding and given more time that they really could have made meaningful, impactful change at Penhurst. Um, hmm. And I, frankly, I disagree with him. Sorry, Greg. But, you know, I think, I think that you know, it's important to recognize that, though, and to yeah. hold that experience as at least valid for themselves. Penhurst officially closes in December of 1987. After that, they, I mean, does it sit dormant for a while, or do they go right to building demolition, or? 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. I wish you could. I wish I could just show you my giant. Like it literally, my timeline spans my <laughs> entire wall because I've had to just like literally map this part out. If I, if and when I ever want to write another book after I finish the first one, <laughs> I want to like write it on the the twenty year period between 1987 when Penhurst closed and uh, 2008 when it um, reopened or was purchased mm. as the Haunted House because it's just so fascinating because yeah. it's this pertinent moment of like what does the state do when you have this site of trauma <laughs> do you preserve it do you sell it do you forget about it a little bit of everything you know like um and the little bit of everything is kind of what happened they started parceling off some of the land before penhurst closed um because i think they kind of knew it was coming <laughs> frankly. Mm. Uh, so they gave the female colony, which was the northern part of the campus, which was separate from the lower or boys colony. Mm. This was a eugenic thing to keep you know, disabled people from having children, of course, because God forbid we reproduce. Um, right. they, they, they sold the female colony to the, um, to the Veterans Association, uh, who tore down the buildings and literally built new buildings on top of the foundations of those old buildings that still exists today as a like a retirement home for the VA and a hospital, which is really kind of interesting to me in a myriad of ways. Hmm. Uh, then part of the farmland was parceled out into an armory for the VA, which is also where the uh, cemetery is. And so I always oh, tell sure. this to our would-be um, urban explorers, do not try to go find the cemetery because you will literally, and I'm not kidding here, get shot. Um, <laughs> It's on a fi on the firing ground, um, <laughs> and then uh, from there, once it closed in '87, the state goes back and forth. And I mean, it's almost every year. There's sure. a new bill introduced by a you know state lawmaker or a new company that introduced a desire to purchase some of the property, or the local government tries to do something. And so there's this oscillation about what to do with it. And ultimately, most of the property just kind of sits dormant. Um, large swaths of the farmland was sold off pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, uh, what used to be most of the farmland at Penhurst is now a golf course, uh, which I always think is interesting, right? Like, what do we do? Uh, and it's all about commodification and money in many ways, right? Like, yeah. um, people are worried about their... They're, you know, keeping under par. They're literally worried about their handicap while, you know, <laughs> playing on the grounds of, of farmlands where disabled people died of exhaustion, right. and, you know, induced by slave labor. Anyway, uh, how's that for your Sunday afternoon, uh, <laughs> nine? Um, yeah. But um, parts of it got consumed by a uh, local church. And then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was conversation in the town. There was like going to be a fishery. There's all these different ideas. But then nothing ever really materialized um, until in 2008, when then the um, state decided to move forward with uh, LLC, Pennhurst uh, Holdings, uh, mm. to purchase the property. Um, and it came with a lot of really uh, unease, like PMPA, Pennhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance, was started like literally the moment that the sale of the property had taken place. Um, because they have been hoping to make a, you know, a, a physical site of remembrance or documentation. Um, 
And then, you know, then lo and behold, when they found out that, that you know, the owners were not going to move through with this plan to, to tear everything down and make it a new development property, but God forbid, make it a more modern house, things really started to get weird quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when, you know, there was a whole lot of tussle between, you know, local uh, constituents, the PMPA, state actors, et cetera, et cetera, brought us into our current moment. Yeah. So the um, so the ghost tours. What uh, what buildings um, do do people go through, and and what the, what were those buildings um, formerly? Yeah. Uh, so before I begin, I just want to make a quick shout out to the crew um, at Penhurst, uh, Autumn, Emily, Caden. Uh, um, Y'all continue to just kill it and do amazing work uh, on those ghost tours. And part of my answer actually it depends on the work that they do. Mm -hmm. um, so it started when I first coming, came out in 2018, it was basically just the Mayflower, uh, which is a former boys dorm, uh, okay. was, at, uh, was uh, M Ward is what it was called. It was, it was just a letter for the longest time until I think like the 70s when they gave them kind of like pseudo ridiculous names, very Pennsylvanian names. Um, and uh, but then uh, moved over to the rock, like the subterranean tunnels that span the grounds, primarily the Rockwell Tunnel. Rockwell was uh, uh, the the school building that eventually got demolished, I think, in 2019. Uh, and uh, then, thanks to the work of Autumn uh, and her ghost hunting crew, they have slowly opened more spaces. Um, on campus, uh, because as, as the owners realized that the ghost hunts were quite profitable, they mm. were, were more willing to, you know, put roofs on buildings, abate buildings, and then Autumn's crew went in and cleaned them out. Oh, um, sure. And uh, so then moved to D building or Devon Hall, uh, which is the largest uh, building ward on campus. Uh, and this is all in the lower boys colony. Um, about 60 acres of land. And then uh, they autumn cleaned out the infirmary, which is actually where most of the inmates died um, mm. at the institution. Uh, and uh, that's been really, really popular um, by the paranormal investigators. And uh, word is now that they are looking to expand into other buildings and time and, you know, literal infrastructural um, because with the state um, leaving these buildings dormant for all the years, uh, the roofs caved, you know, oh, and sure. uh, um, nature started to reclaim the space. And once the roofs go, it's, you know, really quick downhill spiral. Um, right. But the buildings are pretty solid, actually. Uh, and so for the buildings that they can, they are trying to keep. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic because one of the proudest things that I've ever been able to do in my life is to open the relationship between PMPA and the LLC. Uh, mm -hmm. Because before I came on the board, they literally viscerally hated each other. <laughs> um, and like, I, mean, I can't even explain how angry they were at each other. And for, I think, really obvious and valid reasons. Um, but my research, you know, I was the first person to ever go through and actually talk to the people that worked there. Most of the researchers had gone through the attraction or to a ghost hunt and mm. just wrote off everyone as being non-disabled, right? And just being a bunch ah. of jerks who were trying to commodify atrocity. Right. And my research was the first to really go in and like, hey, tell me about yourself, right? 
And through that and through realizing how connected these people are to the space, that's when we started to get PMPA on board. Um, mm. And so what's really interesting about that then is like the work of Autumn and her ghost hunting crews, like they're actively preserving this place, yeah. right? And, but they're also doing so knowing that they have to make it sellable. They have to make it marketable because the only way the LLC is going to keep this place up is if they continue to make money. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a real deal with the devil in a lot of ways, but they genuinely respect uh, and care for this place as their own. I mean, they literally use like a geo tracker and refer to it as home, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and so you can tell the ways in which for the disabled people that work at Penhurst, this has really come to define, and I'm going to say our lives because it has come to redefine my life as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's so palpable about this is if you talk to really any institutional survivor, they fall on one to two camps. They're either... Mm -hmm tear these places down or keep them up. Most of them, frankly, say tear them down. And most of the Penrith survivors I've talked to have all said tear it down. Mm. And, but for me, I think what's really important is that we don't. Mm. Because while I understand and want to validate the experiences and rationale of the survivors for why they want these places to go away, I fear that if we literally destroy them, we'll forget. Mm. Right? It's the same thing about Auschwitz and the institutions. We can never go back. Mm. We can never forget. And for better or for worse, this private LLC is doing something that the state never did or never expressed interest in doing. And that mm. is preserving my community's history. But on the flip side, right, this also opens a really complicated question about Penrose is the only operating museum of disability history in the country. And it's owned and operated by a for-profit LLC whose primary business venture is haunted houses. <laughs> yeah. Right? So what does that tell <sighs> about society and how they view people like me and our community's history? Right? If it wasn't mm. for the work of Autumn and her team. And mind you, most of these folks are all under the age of 21. Autumn, for example, is a disabled first-generation college student who's finishing up her senior year, right? Who, or who are not historians, who are not archivists, who are not uh, geologists, right? They are just vernacular people, disabled people, who are doing this because they care and they don't want our community's history to go to the ash heap. Yeah. And are literally, actually, figuratively, uh, figuratively and quite literally pulling our community's history from the ash heap. Because when you go into these uh, buildings where they're grabbing these artifacts from, they're literally covered in ash <laughs> and debris, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and so I think for all those who want to dismiss the haunted house or the ghost hunts or whatever, right, for being this, like, terrible thing, I'm really profoundly struck by the question of, well, what have you done for us lately, right? Mm. And if you look at what the people at the haunted house are doing, they're doing a whole hell of a lot. In fact, a lot more than most of us in our community are doing to sure. preserve and to, to keep our history intact. And I think that's really important. Yeah. You know, you've already kind of answered this question. Um, it was sent in by a listener, so I, I wanted to... Mm. Uh, 
kind of presented to you formally anyway. Mike from Boston um, wanted to know uh, why you feel it's important to maintain the history of the asylum. And I know that you were talking about, um, you know, a lot of the uh, former Penhurst residents say to tear it down. Um, you know, a lot of people in the community say to tear it down. There are some people who are saying, you know, keep it up. Um, and, you know, I, I think it all comes back to, um, you know, those who, uh, I forget how the quote goes, but but those who um, don't learn their history are doomed to repeat it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I keep coming back to that quote over and over again, whenever I, you know, kind of do research on, you know, one of these, um, you know, asylums, you know, particularly the ones that are just defunct and are not, you know, they're just kind of rotting away. Um, you know, the the model, um, you know, there there's clearly a model right for these places yeah and it seems like they they follow the same framework every single time whenever they create one of these places they say we're going to create this amazing place that's going to have this and this and this and this and it's going to help people so profoundly and then it just devolves into this for lack of a better word cluster um yeah. You know, I mean, you know, you, you have people sleeping on top of each other. All of a sudden you have people who are being moved from like the juvenile or the prison system into these places. Um, you know, you, you have staff that are overworked and, and underpaid and, you know, and then you have all of these abuse issues. Um, and, and so I guess, you know, why, why do you feel it's important to maintain the history of the asylum? Um, but also, yeah. you know, how, how do you feel about the fact that this is like, it's almost like somebody has a stamp, you know, and they're like, I'm going to put an asylum here and an asylum there. And then it's, you know, and they're all the same and it all, it's all the same story. Yeah. Well, so a couple of thoughts on that. The first is I, I just want to, um, Again, give credence to um, you know Autumn and the disabled haunters at Penhurst because mm -hmm. I I I think alongside them. I mean, as an ethnographer, I'm really fortunate that I get to theorize and to not only theorize and think with these amazing people, but also get to know them and call them friends and and right. family. Uh, and as one disabled haunter told me, there will be a time where the space that supports disabled people is run by disabled people. Hmm. But until that point, we must work to create it. And I think that kind of sums it all up, right? Hmm. Because in terms of why we need to remember this history or why we need to keep Penhurst around is because Penhurst, these stamps, these monoliths that you're referring to are created by non-disabled people who intend them for disabled people. And despite this, despite the atrocities that happened there, despite the ways in which no human, disabled or not, should ever have to exist there, these spaces, by the way in which disabled people have lived there, have found joy, pain, suffering, humor, all of the, rel all the emotions one feels in this space, hmm. it leaves an imprint, right? And it makes that space a disabled and what's so mm -hmm. profound, I feel like, about the work that the disabled haunters are doing at Penhurst is, yes, they're not Penhurst survivors, 
And you're damn right, I wish we could have more survivors helping us in this work. Unfortunately, many of them are no longer alive or provider agencies won't allow us access to them or they just don't want to be a part of it. And that's their prerogative, I totally understand. Sure. But what matters is, is that it's a community of disabled people who are coming together and forming a community under their terms, right? To come back to that quote, it's creating a space of their own and not a space developed and designed by non-disabled people and made to, to retrofit for disabled people to exist in like institutions. Mm. And that's where the power lies, right? And we need to keep doing that. So it, it's both so that we never forget, we never go back, but also so that we begin to think and live out a future that is both defined by and brought about by disabled people, for disabled people. Yeah, that's very, very profound. You it know, makes me it makes me wonder how long that will how long that will take. Um <sighs> I mean I, I hope it happens tomorrow. Um <laughs> you know, I, I really do. Um you know, having had uh you know friends who have had to um, kind of go into these places and, and you know, have had their own experiences there. Um, you know, having had my experiences um, with mental health, you know, I've, I've always been very open and honest on this podcast about, you know, the fact that, um, you know, I suffer from anxiety um, and that, you know, I'm managing it with medication, but, you know, it's it's one of those things, you know, it, it, it doesn't always get fixed. You know, it's, it's something that you live with. Um, right. So I've always been very open and honest about that. And, you know, I certainly hope that um, that this this conversation, um, you know, opens uh, more eyes to, you know, the the issues that the disabled community faces on, you know, a, a daily basis. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll start to see some change. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and ultimately that's the hope, right? And I think like that's why I'm so determined about going back to that mentorship model, right? And 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 really lowering the ladder. Um, yeah. You know, one of one of the most powerful things I've ever done in my time with the PMPA. Going back to your very first question you asked, was after I got the PMPA and the, at Penner's LLC to talk, I created a fellowship program. And Autumn, who I've referenced before, was the first recipient of that fellowship program. Mm. And we're now in our second year. Uh, both our fellows happen to identify as uh, women, disabled women, first-generation college students. Like, um, And I get to serve as a mentor. And that has left a profound mark on my life because mm. I never had a mentor growing up. You know, I mean, I remember I was giving a lecture, I was, giving, I was invited to give a talk at a, at a prep school, this was about a month ago, and, and uh, one of the students, the only black man in the class, <laughs> raised his hand and asked me, um, did you have any role models growing up? Hmm. And his question literally almost brought me to tears. I had to like fight them back <laughs> because yeah. I, I knew what I had to answer, and that was no. Uh, hmm. Society doesn't make role models out of disabled people and so you know to your point about you know hopefully we'll see that change right mm. to me the answer the guarantee of seeing that change 
results in that wherever we are in life, whatever position, power, privilege, or lack thereof that we occupy, that we ensure that we are open about our disabilities as we are safe and able to do so. Sure. And that we seek out other people with disabilities, especially younger people with disabilities, and let them in to our lives, right? And to yeah. provide, whether it's explicit or implicit, you're going to be doing mentorship, whether you realize it or not. Mm-hmm. And through that, right, that's why this has been such a profound thing for me. Because, yeah, I mean, I give them some, you know, I, I get to give them a title and I get to give them some money, you know, from the PMPA. <laughs> but I think what matters the most through these conversations is that they know that they're human, that they have value, and that they are cared about. Right? Mm-hmm. And that they too can do something. And for me, it's been beyond rewarding to know that, you know, there's someone coming up behind me. And that there's more chance for that change to happen because it is happening. And I think that is my only provocation to the listeners is just, you know, seek out opportunities for those mentorship um possibilities particularly if you identify as disabled but even if you don't because really no matter what the course of change is or the the topic of change is the course for that is just ensuring that we empower the people who come up behind us thank you so much for coming on um i really appreciate it this has been such an amazing conversation um i honestly did not think that i would learn as much about penhurst um as i have uh in the last hour but um yeah it's it's been really fantastic so thank you so very very much of course yeah thank you so much for having me on here real pleasure yeah Um, happy um, to continue the conversation yeah absolutely um yeah and i like i instantly want you to email me your dissertation obviously (laughs) uh because i want to read that and geek out over it um but is there uh, anything you'd like to add? I, I always leave time for shameless self-promotion. So if there's anything. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, multiple things. One, please check out uh, the Penhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance website, uh, preservepenhurst.org. Uh, we're actively looking for uh, donations, especially to benefit the Penhurst Museum, which again is the only operating museum of disability history and culture right now. Uh, in the country, and that's huge. Please don't let our history uh, go to the ash heap of history and let the work of Autumn and her other amazing, amazing uh, staff go to waste in that way. Um, check out Penhurst Asylum on, on Facebook. Uh, so shout out to the, the crew and their work as well. Uh, Ghost Hunt History Tours, uh, their website is penhurstasylum.com. Uh, and then finally, for me, a uh, couple of different things going on. I'm always uh, looking for anybody who wants to bring me on as a public speaker or a consultant. I do a lot of access consultants and consulting and, and, and uh, uh, a whole variety of things. Uh, you can check out my website. Uh, it's www.nathanrstenberg.com. Uh, and then finally, I'm really happy to announce uh, I'm co-directing a film about Penhurst because I realized that probably outside of you, Janine, no one is going to want to read my dissertation. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to uh, make a film about it. And uh, we were just awarded uh, Catapult Film Fund's development grant, which is super exciting. Uh, they're a real prestigious uh, film fund who 
are known for taking risks on on films that are uh, trying to to tell a, a story that has not been told. And yeah. uh, they they for example they um, provided early funding to Crip Camp on Netflix, which is an amazing documentary about the disability rights movement. Um, mm. So it feels really exciting to to be recognized in that way and uh, also just to be able to have the opportunity to tell the stories of you know the disabled haunters as well as this kind of history in a cinematic way um, and so look forward to that yeah that's amazing congratulations thank you yeah um all right well i i will <laughs> set you free um thank you thank you for your time yeah thank you for your time thank you so much have a good night yeah, you too, Jane. That's it for this week, dear listeners. Tune in next time for more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until then, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is created using GarageBand. You can find the Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at Identity Pod, and a transcript of this episode can be found at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, leave a review, and subscribe so that you'll be in the know when a new episode drops. 